Yeah. Listen. We gon' do it like this. Yusuf Chadeli, tune in now for all your money. Go out and get it, cause nothing is free. Running in oil and gas company. Houston, Texas, I love my city. Young, successful, and wealthy. Whoa, hustling, grinding, repeat. Entrepreneur, that's who I be. Let's go. Taking care of What's up, guys? Another episode of Oil Money here. Uh, this week, I, you know, I always say I have a special guest, but this week I actually have a really special guest. It's somebody that I've, uh, and this isn't to say that my previous guests weren't special either, but Jonathan Gregory, um, I, I want to introduce him as the CEO of RMX resources, um, does, uh, you know, a lot of oil and gas, uh, production and exploration in California, but that wouldn't actually be doing you justice because I think there's that that's not a box that I think you just fill. I think you are, um, um, you know, you're a part of the compassionate leadership. You, uh, I mean, you wear many hats you've done, you are an ex banker, our, our ex banker. Um, so you've worn the banking hat, the financial hat. Um, you are the president of, correct me if I'm wrong anywhere, president of black lives matter in Santa Monica. Uh, no. Okay. All right. Okay. Correct me now, Jonathan. <laughs> The Santa Monica, I'm a director, former board of directors of the Santa Monica Black Lives Association. Black Lives Association. So is there a difference between Black Lives Matter and Black Lives Association? And oh, pardon any ignorance. No, Black Lives Association is, is something that the Santa Monica City Council has um, developed to assist it with, with learning more uh, about black, black lives and how to empower blacks in, in the Santa Monica area. So. That's fantastic because if, if you look at it, your track record, right. And I, and I hate to kind of jump ahead of what, who you are, because I, obviously I want to, everyone to kind of get a basic idea of who you are and where you've come from, but you know, the diversity that kind of comes into a cultural, I guess, workplace and how you kind of uh, do things because you've worked at, you know, major banks, you've worked at, you know, uh, oil and gas companies, um, you've done kind of a gamut of seeing, you've probably seen a lot more than, than most. Right. And I guess from a diversity standpoint, not only are you probably well fitted for it to kind of be in a position to, I guess, advise on, on, on kind of the current world situation on where everything is, but also to kind of give a, I, I don't want to, I, a perspective of how you've kind of faced diversity in the workforce. And then beyond that, how you're kind of dealing with that yourself, because, you know, you are probably, you know, you're uh, really well-versed. Like I said, I mean, jack of many trades. So how does that like, you know, kind of give me a background there. Well, you know, my, uh, I think when you look at me working with the black lives association, first box I check is I'm black. Yeah. Really? No, I don't know if you knew that. uh, (laughs) And it's interesting because I've, you know, my whole career has been pretty much in all around the oil and gas space, which is not one where you see a lot of diversity. But I think that allows me to bring kind of a different look when I'm around the table with other, I'll say, you know, more liberal uh, sure. folks uh, as to how does this really work in the workplace? How does this really work in industries that some may think are, are mostly for majorities, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And I like how you're being diplomatic with your answers and kind of how you're kind of saying it, but you know, I've, I've mentioned it before and you know, I'm, you know, I don't want to obviously call myself a minority in the situation because I'm not sure if I am, but um, you know, being, you know, a 
Pakistani American. I mean, I've never been born and raised in in Houston. Um, I haven't, I don't think the diversity that you've probably seen, how have you seen it affect on, on the oil and gas space, right? You're an oil and gas guy. Uh, I'm, I would like to call myself an oil and gas guy, but where would you say that, you know, the diversity is, but has it been a hard road? Has it made, has your road been harder or easier? And the reason I ask that, because I'm sure, you know, there have been some difficulties along the way. And I'm saying that due to, to, to race or diversity or anything like that. Have you had a harder time with that? And the reason I ask you is specifically is because I know you'll be honest. You're not just going to say, oh, it's been a, a tough road or, oh, no, it hasn't been easy. You'll, I know you'll give me the candid truth. You know, um, look, I grew up in Southeast Texas. I'm from Beaumont, Texas. And uh, going to, you know, so when it comes to issues like racism, I grew up with it. Mm-hmm. Um, nothing, nothing new. As you progress, you go to college, I went to Lamar University, still right there in Southeast Texas. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, people use the N-word and all the other things against you. But it honestly, I don't believe it ever hindered me. Because if you stay focused, which I tried to do, mm-hmm. on, on what my goal was, which was to get a degree, get out of there and get a job, um, you know, I was able to do that. Now, when it comes to, okay, getting that first job and uh in a major bank, that's a little more difficult. So did you face like, did you see like, because you've been a banker for, you know, quite some time, even though you look really young, you've been a banker, you've been around the block. Um, Have you seen a cultural shift from, let's say 20 years ago to now and how drastic is it? Well, you know, large large corporate banks um, for the most part, I think they're, you're seeing diversity councils set up. You're seeing more a push for more diversity on boards. And that's where it starts. It starts at a board level. Uh, you have to make it a priority of something you want to address. Um, when you look at historically at bank credit training programs where most of the analysts and eventually that become bankers come into, I mean, you, you go to the same universities. Basically, it's one of those situations where if you don't if you don't widen your circle, if you don't cast a larger net, you just keep catching the same kind of fish. Sure. And it's was it in you know, were was diversity uh left out intentionally? No, but it wasn't intentionally addressed. So hmm. that's I see more of that today where diversity and inclusion are and I think it should be. Absolutely, man. Our, I our country, I'll say this, our in our country, when you look at the demographics, they continue to to shift, um, and shift is not the right word, but it's a mix. We are, you know, we have all races and ethnicities, and you know, it's important that we try and include as many as we can. I really like that. I, I, I like that approach because there's, you know, and you get a different uh, a viewpoint, right? When you get a, a mix of different people. Uh, you know, America is a, is a melting pot, really. It, it really is a melting pot of different cultures, different people, and uh, some of the smartest people in the room that I've seen sometimes, man, they're, they, you never expect it. There, there are some, some guys that I've, I've seen, uh, kind of working the, the, the flip flops and, you know, kind of, you know, and I, I joke about Chuck Yates about this. And I, by the way, I don't know if you know this or not, Jonathan, but this podcast is we're an avid, avid, avidly against Chuck Yates. I mean, we're just not, we're just anti-Chuck, we're anti-Chuck Yates here. And, um, being facetious, by the way, Chuck, if you're listening, um, but 
it's Chuck is a perfect example. And I'm using Chuck as an example because the guy doesn't really fit a mold of, of, you know, if you, anybody who knows him and meets him, it's that, you know, the hoodie wearing kind of, you know, happy go lucky kind of guy. But if you talk to him, actually, you know, some business strategies, which I, I have me and him have talked about them. Um, the guys, I mean, he's got some really, really sharp ideas and that's an example. And I'm saying this because, you know, people, you just don't, you can't judge a book by its cover anymore. You really, really can't. And I think that it's pretty awesome that, uh, you're kind of working on that diversity standpoint. And then that kind of segues me back into the compassionate leadership. Tell me a little bit more about the compassionate leadership group and kind of what you guys do there and, and what you're doing there. Well, you know, I think for, for so long that we think of leaders as, you know, hard charging, single focus, uh, individuals. And, we don't realize that, you know, you look at a leader of a company, there are, there are, they're not just individuals. There are a lot of families when you start really breaking it down, mm -hmm. their families depending on that leader to get things right. Their entire livelihood is based on it. Yeah. Um, and, and leaders need to, to really think about that as they, as they make their decisions. Mm -hmm. Now, you know, people have, have lives and, it's important. I've always found, and I'll just say this is this has kind of been the way I've worked, is the more a person knows that I care about them, the more likely they are to listen. Sure. And the more likely they are to listen, the more likely we're going to actually achieve our goals. So am I am I being compassionate just to get what I want out of them? No. Um, but you know, people have choices of where <laughs> they work. I used to tell, yeah. you know, I used to tell one of my, one of my managers over the years that, look, I'm a free agent. <laughs> I really don't have to be here. Um, I can go work somewhere else. But see, you were gifted, right? Like, you know, I, I don't want to say this to, to kind of discount anybody else, but I mean, there's, you are, I, I, there's a small group of Jonathan Gregory's out there who are gifted above and beyond that they can do stuff that, you know, a lot of people are not in that position because that's where I might disagree a little bit. A lot of people are like, man, I need this paycheck. I need this job. I got to be here. But you're in a position to be like, Hey, listen, when, when five banks call, call, you know, call me or, you know, five oil and gas companies call me this and that you get to choose, you choose where you get to work. Right. A lot of people are just like, Oh, thank God I got this job offer and I can, I can kind of do this. Uh, how does that kind of work? Because there've been so many people I've seen it. I've seen it personally. I've seen it through other companies and other people where they're just like, man, we absolutely, and you've probably heard this a million times. We hate our boss and we don't want to work there. And, but it's just, it's a means to an end because it's a paycheck. Well, I mean, that goes back to a deeper issue and that mm -hmm. deeper issue is most people don't know their gift. It's not that they're not gifted, <laughs> but they don't know what it is. And because they don't know what that gift is, they assume that they don't have a gift and they undervalue themselves. When you know that inside of you that, that there's a gift, you start to put a value on that. And once you do that, you realize you do have choices. You don't have to settle because you have a value. Um, and I think that's the part also gets back to diversity and inclusion. All people have value. All people have something to bring to the table. But most people, a lot of people don't know that they have something to bring to the table. Hmm. It's really beautifully put, actually, because if you think about it, you're actually, you're right. Everybody does have value, but a lot of people don't realize their value. Uh, and people go their entire lives without realizing their value. So how do you, 
let me ask this then. I got to, you know, you're a CEO of an oil and gas company. You've been in many, many different positions. How do you see somebody who's, let's say, the the guy that's a, a non-starter that they, uh, you know, they're they're very intelligent or they're not very intelligent on one regard, but they're intelligent on another regard. How do you get the most out of somebody? How do you show somebody that you care? Because everybody's different. Some people respond to, um, I think, a little bit more harsh leadership and some people respond better to, hey, you know what? Everything's going to be all right. We, you know, everything's going to be good. And my myself personally, I'm, I'm kind of a mix of both. I, I am, you know, you know, my father really well. That's how I know you, Jonathan, is that you've worked with my father along the years. My dad has a, a very unique way of being a, um, uh, you know, a, a, a very staunch businessman. And he's very, you know, it's, it's this way, it's, it's the, this way or the wrong way. And he's also, there's also times where he's a very, very giving and compassionate person. It just really kind of depends on the situation itself. And I've seen it kind of through him and I've actually grown up, you know, kind of seeing that. So I would say as a leader, I've kind of taken that role as well is that there's times where I'm, I'm the guy who just kind of flips the table over. And there's also times where, you know, I'm a lot, I would say, uh, uh, demure and more calm. So I guess, how do you kind of bring that out in people and how do you notice that and recognize that? Well, you know, whether it's a big organization or a small organization, there are, call it those, those folks that, are, that small group of folks that, are, that directly report to you or that you're involved with day to day. A leader has to get to know those folks because you can't, you can't show a person that you care if you don't know what matters to that person. And it could be different for everyone, you know? So the, uh, you know, the person that has, you know, school age kids that needs a little flexibility to go to a ball game. You, but you also know that if you give them that flexibility, <laughs> they're still going to get their, they're still going to get the job done. Mm-hmm. You know, they'll figure out a way to get it done. Yeah. Um, or you can actually, you know, say, no, Hey, you know, you need to be here in the office and now you piss that person off and you know what you're going to get. You're going to get, what that paycheck gets. It's gonna, you're going to get just what they're required to do. You're never going to get more because they never saw you give them more. Hmm. That's, but you also say a person doesn't have, you know, school age kids. So some people will think that, well, I'm going to give everybody flexibility to work from home or whatever. Well, everyone doesn't need flexibility to work from home. So you have to know your people. If you don't know your people, I mean, that's kind of the number one thing. If you're going to be a compassionate leader is you got to, got to know your people. Well, I mean, personally, I know you, man, you're, you're one of the nicest people I know. I mean, you, and your, your career trajectory kind of shows that as well is that you've always been able to kind of take either, you know, whatever you're doing, whether it's a project, whether it's a company you're working with, I've always seen you kind of do, you know, great things in whatever you're doing. So it's obvious whatever you've been doing and what you do, it works. Right. So, I mean, I always want to say is that, you know what, it's great. It's fine and dandy to say that, Hey, you can be a nice guy or a mean guy. How do you know which one works? It's obvious that you are a compassionate leader. And it's obvious that anybody who knows you, that you've had, you know, a great amount of success. So I think that it kind of goes a lot further when somebody that you can actually kind of see them tangibly being a compassionate leader and then obviously kind of, kind of growing, but uh, you know, taking a, a few steps back, how did you get into oil and gas? Like how did this, how did this become where a, a kid from Beaumont 
kind of goes to school to, at Lamar. And then how did you get into oil and gas? And did that start with the banking or how did you, how did this happen? How did the, the, the jump essentially happen? You know, I, uh, I have always liked the challenge and I mean, my career in banking, you know, started back in the late eighties and wasn't a lot of opportunity. Went through a you know, credit training program like, like most, <laughs> but I, um, uh, once you get there was when I really got the exposure to the oil and gas lending group. And, you know, this kind of goes back to that diversity. Um, I was advised by a lot of people not to pursue it. For any specific reason or they were well, just well, like. the specific reason was when you're making, you know, at that point, most of your oil and gas companies are private companies. Mm -hmm. We'll call them middle market, private oil and gas companies, a bunch of good old boys. Sure. And, you know, this, this young black guy is just not going to be successful doing that. Why don't you go into corporate lending? Why don't you go into this type of lending? Why, you know, so, you know, good, well-meaning people tried to kind of direct, redirect me uh, away from, from the oil and gas lending group. Um, but I saw that as where, that's where the, that's where the action was where I'm in Houston, Texas. Yeah. Yeah. You know? And so I it's became, exciting. I, I became fascinated with it. Yeah. Um, now that I, that I face some challenges. Oh yeah. Um, I mean, you can imagine who you are, a 20 something year old banker going into a 60 year old good old boy's office, you know, make it, making a cold call. I wasn't really what they were expecting. Sure. No, but things have changed a lot since then. Oh yeah. Uh, do you believe in the power of a cold call or are you kind of like that, that face to face relationship kind of gets you through the door a lot faster? You know, I do believe in cold calls and um, I, particularly when you're young because it, you know, it builds your, you know, it toughens you up, you know, getting, getting that, you know, hell no. And somebody slamming the phone in your face that, that, that definitely does. But I, I got to say this, man, and I'm, I'm, I've been lucky enough to know you where there've been many times where I've, I've said, Hey, Jonathan, I need, I need to talk to this person here or, Hey, this is kind of going this way. And, you know, could you make a nudge and you've made a few calls or, and, uh, and this has actually happened where this, the, you know, we, we were having a little bit of trouble in a, in a deal that we were doing. And I was like, you know, Hey, Jonathan, do you know, kind of, uh, the other party and whatnot? And you're like, yeah, yeah, I might know them. And we gave him a call and sure enough, it was smooth sailing after that. And that deal got done. So, I mean, it's, uh, I, I definitely think there's a lot of power in, in situations where you're lucky enough where you have that, that, that person thing kind of get you through the door. I think it obviously makes life a lot easier, but there is that scar tissue that kind of comes with that cold call and kind of getting beat up over and over and over again. And then eventually you get the, yes. I mean, it's, it's the old adage that, uh, the, the flower that's, that that's grown in the concrete, uh, values the sun a lot more than the flower in the garden. Uh, so I, I think that there's, uh, there's, there's both ways to kind of look at that. Um, but oil and gas, man, I mean, you've, you've seen, obviously you've been a banker, you've seen every, every aspect of, I want, I want to say a business perspective over business life cycle as well. Oil and gas is a volatile market. You've seen the ups and downs. It's not like this is, you know, you're not new to the rodeo. Why did you decide to stick through it post 2014. And that's because I, I don't know when you started, you know, kind of being a working with independent oil and gas companies, but from what I recall, it's, you've been working with oil and gas companies, you know, 
during essentially, of I want to call it oil and gas crisis. What, what is it the challenge that gets you or do you think you bring a certain level of value? What, what kind of brought you there where you're just like, that's what I want to go do? Because like I mentioned, you probably have a plethora of options where you can kind of go get, you know, either a job anywhere or start a new business. Um, I mean, people that I know you absolutely, if you threw them an idea, they would just fund it just based off the fact that you threw out the idea. Yeah. You're, you're very kind. I wish it was that easy. <laughs> but, uh, but you know, I, um, my banking career ended in 2012 when I basically made the decision that, uh, it was time to, to take the leap of faith and go out and to the other side, you know, to go to the, so I was wrong. You left it at the height then. I, I left. I left banking in 2012 uh, with these grand ideas of joining a management team as, as you know CFO, go out, raise some private equity, you know, put a few, drill a few wells, flip it, you know, become multimillionaire overnight. You know, um, you know, I should have called Chuck Yates, <laughs> but. Uh, you know, the group I was with, we did raise some equity. Um, but then, then 2014 happened and it just you know, it didn't go very well. Sure. sure. Um, and from there, I did some, a couple other <coughs> kind of restructuring CFO type work. Mm-hmm. But you know, I never wanted to go back to banking. Uh, and that was really just because the, uh, I mean, I enjoyed the challenge. And, you know, there's something about, trying to survive that's, you know, keeps your blood flowing. You know what? It's so funny that you say that my dad said the exact same thing. We were having a conversation and, you know, being, you know, it was, you know, upper level, upper level executive conversation. And we were talking about this deal that we're doing and giving him the rundown and all that other fun stuff. And I, I made the mistake personally, I made the mistake of, of, it was a large sum of money, right. That we were just kind of just leaving on the table and I'm like, pops, who cares? Right. And if this was me being, I, I realize it now just stupid of me to say this, but I'm like, who cares? Right. The, the deal is worth so much. This is just, it's pennies, right. For what we're actually going to be doing. And you know, my father, self-made man and whatnot. And he sat there for about an hour and lectured me. He's just like, he's like, you know what, this is why, you know, you're not going to be able to go to the next level because you have that mentality of you're full. You're not hungry. If you're hungry, you're going to go fight and you're going to scratch. Or you're going to, you will do whatever it takes to win, which I've, we've been there before in 2014, 2015, which, you know, we're, we were lucky enough where we not only survived that we grew, we threw, we, we, we thrived in that situation, but now things are great. We did some major acquisitions, you know, the banks like us, everything is good. And now I'm just like, oh, who, who cares? It's, it's, that's nominal money. And he's like, listen, you got to be hungry. You got to stay hungry. I don't care how, how wealthy you get. I don't care how good your deals are. If you don't stay hungry, you're, you're never going to, you're never going to be able to go to the next level. And there's always a next level. Well, your dad's right. I mean, and that staying hungry, that, that drive to uh, succeed, you know, to that next level, it pushes you, it motivates you. You it's never hard. thought about going back to banking. Like when everything went to, went to crap in 2014, 2015, you never were just like, man, it would be nice to just have a steady paycheck where I know that it's kind of, everything's kind of coming in and whatnot because oil and gas companies at that time, nobody knew if they were going to make it the next quarter. Well, yeah, you think about it. It's like, well, well I can always, <laughs> I can go back. Uh, you, know, you can always have that second thought, but you can't dwell on it because if you dwell on it, you know, you, you 
giving that seed too much room to grow. Mm. Uh, so you, you've got to say, hey, I want to make this work. You're all in. You're all in. I like that. All in. I like that approach. I, I like that approach. So now what's the, I mean, you're still all in on, on oil and gas. And we were just, we were, we were talking about it. I kind of want to bring it up because obviously all the crazes is, is cryptocurrency and Bitcoin and all the other fun stuff. And you kind of mentioned an idea where it, it on, on its face value, it sounds super, super cool. Right. So <laughs> to kind of give a little bit of background, you were mentioning and correct me everywhere I'm wrong because I, I probably will be wrong somewhere here is that, you know, you got these oil and gas wells in California, you're flaring some gas, good gas that you have, but you just can't sell it because the, the purchaser just can't take it. And you found a way to mine Bitcoin where you're able to sell this gas actually at a pretty good profit. And, and that's just a very, you know, 30,000 foot view of it. But how does that work? How do you, how have you put together essentially, you know, crypto mining and, and natural gas and oil and gas? How have you put that together? Yeah. Well, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's been out there for a while and I think it's taken, it's taken a minute for everyone to get a little more comfortable with, with cryptocurrency and, and mining. <laughs> So a lot but, of people who are myself included, I'm still skeptical. I told you I bought some Bitcoin and I'm, I'm still like, uh, I don't know, man, if this is the truth or not, but you know, I just kind of, I want to jump on the bandwagon. Uh, you know, a lot of, uh, there are a lot of producers that have, have a need to get rid of some gas. Uh, we're not the only one, but we flare, you know, all, probably all in about a million cubic feet a day. Okay. So, what are you going to do with that? Is there a way that you can actually, rather than burn it, you can you can make some money off of it? Uh, so when we were approached by initially the first company, I, I treaded very lightly on the idea because where we are in, uh, you know, in Southern California, the uh, the permitting restrictions are, you know, it's incredibly heavily regulated, tough environment. I was surprised they even let you flaring up there. Yeah, well, it's it's not an open flame. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So, uh, so it's not even real flare. Yeah, it's a flare. But it's, just, I, yeah. it's not. It's not what you think of when you see uh, you know, an yeah. open flame out there on the side of the road. No, but so we looked at: is there a way to? You have to be creative because remember you're trying to survive. So, um, so how can I be creative? How can I come up with a way to maybe you know one part of our field we looked at installing fuel cells, generating electricity, you know, to power the field. Well, it just basically didn't use enough gas. I even talked to the, uh, you know, to the city that we're, little small city that we're in. I said, okay, what if I generate this excess electricity and we install a fueling station, a recharging station with some of this electricity? You know, um, so we're, we're always looking for a way to, you know, to get rid of that, do something with that gas. Now the mining comes along as, hey, here's a way that from my research so far, I mean, you can maybe make what equates to about you know, 10, 10 plus dollars in MCF on what you're, <laughs> on, on what you're using to generate electricity. Um, now, you still have a long road ahead of you as far as the regulations to get the the micro turbines uh, are the generators approved through the air quality management district and those things. But it's just another way to, to face head on challenges that we constantly face in this industry. I mean, we were talking about it, that 
you know, and I was, I was skeptical. Even when you first mentioned it, I, I thought you were messing with me. I was like, no, Jonathan, you're not doing that. And you were like, no, I am. I'm, I'm personally, I'm personally doing that. And then that's when I started paying attention a little bit more. Obviously, like I said, whenever you talk, I listen. And I was, I was listening to that and it just sounds like it's so, because we have fields ourselves, right? We have fields ourselves that kind of fit that mold of kind of what you're describing. It sounds super, super interesting. And it kind of tackles that, that, that question that you were inevitably going to get to is that what's the future for fossil fuels? And we were talking about that is that, you know, there's this, there's this fight, intense fight against, you know, fossil fuel and it's got to be renewable energy. This sounds like, and I don't want to say this answers the question, right? This answers the fossil fuel question for, for us, but is this, do you think scalable to start making, you know, operators more money and then making the, um, I guess the, the fossil fuel producing cleaner? Uh, I don't know if it's the answer for that. I mean, baby step, uh, producers are facing a lot of pressure, not just in California to, to stop flaring gas. Yeah. Yeah. So what, so it's, yes, it's an, it's an immediate answer to that. Here's an option, uh, to flare your gas, uh, long-term. I mean, I think the jury's still out on, for a lot <laughs> of people, uh, on cryptocurrency. But for now, it's a... Uh, Do you think it's going to crash? I think if, if it continues to grow, um, governments around the world will find a way to, to hey, we need to tax this somehow. we got to regulate it somehow. Sure. And that will be the beginning of the end. Yeah, that's true. That's, that's usually how it goes. Right. Um, I mean, as soon as something is too good to be true, it, it really is too good to be true. Um, I'm still, I'm still up in the air about crypto man and Bitcoin itself. Um, kind of what you're mentioning on the mining side of stuff. And you were showing me those pictures. It sounds super cool, man. It looks, it looks super cool. And I'm excited to kind of see how it, how it kind of turns out. I'm, I'm kind of, I'm very, um, you know, I'm, I'm very new to EFT on the, the energy financial Twitter, but it's a, it's an interesting space to kind of hear some of these takes. And some of them are very, very, uh, you know, crypto. Yes, that's exactly where we're going to go. And that's kind of where everything's kind of going. There's some people who just, oh, they're not too into it. And, um, yeah, I'm, I'm excited to kind of see how this kind of, if there's a synergy between the fossil fuel and, uh, crypto, it sounds like, it sounds like there is, it sounds like there really is. And it sounds like people have been doing it and it's, you know, it's always nice to see somebody that you trust that's kind of doing it successfully. So I'm, I'm excited to kind of see it. And I, I know that, you know, we're, we were just, you know, briefly talking about it. Let's, you know, kind of look at, look into it for our own stuff. So, I mean, it, it's, it's very, very interesting uh, that you kind of mentioned that, that it kind of goes there. So, you know, a lot of people don't know this is that you're kind of, you're a staunch Texan, you know, oil and gas in Texas versus now you're an operator in California. I, I, I hate to say this because it, everything that you hear is that they're screaming it from the rooftops that California is coming into Texas and, everybody's kind of moving over here because, you know, Joe Rogan and Elon Musk did it. And now they think the whole population is kind of doing it. I mean, you were talking about it and you're just like, man, that's about like, you know, it accounts for maybe 2% of people who can actually move. And those people are, are generally not moving anyway. So how is it being an operator in California? Is it, is it, it tougher? Sucks. <laughs> that's, I guess that's a blunt way to put it. It, <laughs> it. it sucks. Is it, do you think it's because they're just not, well-informed about the, uh, the industry, or is it because that there's just such a, 
uh, a war against energy in California specifically. What, what do you think it is? Well, I think the whole narrative around fossil fuels is, you know, it's being hijacked by environmental groups. Um, and, you know, they're out there and, and people who don't know, they listen to them because, I mean, they got out there first talking about the, uh, the damage that it's doing to, to the environment long before, you know, so we we're found ourselves in a position of, of responding. So now you have to unconvince folks of something that they've been convinced of, even though it's wrong. Yeah, exactly. They've been convinced of it. But and, you're, you're talking about situations where, um, I mean, how are people going to get to work? I mean, it's, it's very, it's very simple. And I think what they don't understand is you'll continue to see a rise in prices um, as you as they continue their you know California it imports probably you know two thirds of the oil that's refined in California to be imported from from Saudi Arabia from overseas when you could be producing it right there uh, you know in your state creating yeah. jobs. Um, and also being better for the environment. That's just not how the, uh, it's not how the government there thinks. I don't know why, man. And, and I ha- I've had this conversation before about Canada as well, the Alberta oil sands. If the Canadians would just get out of their own way and let them produce, they would be just as prolific of, of a producer as North America or not North America, USA and every other powerhouse, right? But they just can't get out of their own way. They're just like, oh, we have to do this and we have to do this. We have to do this. I mean, unless you're a major player in Canada, I mean, it's just, it's ridiculous. They don't get out of their own way. They don't realize that oil and oil and gas is a, a huge chunk of their economy. I mean, it's not, it's not tree hugging. I mean, it's, and it's, I'm not saying that you go and destroy the, the, the earth, right? That's not what we're saying or anybody's advocating to do. But if you can sustainably, which you can, very well can, if you can sustainably produce and go after some of these sands and whatnot, I mean, you're no longer, I mean, you're producing some of the, I, I think some of the largest oil reserves on earth are are underneath, you know, Alberta and British Columbia soil. And people just don't realize that. And like you said, in California, Kern County is, is a prolific, prolific field or it's a prolific uh, county, but people just don't want to go after it. And, and remind me, I could be wrong here. Is fracking illegal in California? Well, it's not necessarily illegal. Getting it, a permit is impossible. It's okay. Okay. So it's not many people are fracking right now, obviously. So you look at a city like, uh, or you look at the LA Basin, which pretty much encompasses all of LA County, which is, I think, you know, square mile basis, the largest, one of the largest counties in the, in the country, mm-hmm. definitely by population. But anyway, it's, it's built on top of an oil field. Yeah. I mean, the city is built on top of an oil field. Um, and there's so much local production that can be, look, the drilling, the producing of it is not what's causes the problems, you know, and there's a, what do you think is causing us the problems then? Well, I mean, that's causing the problems for the environment, for the environment. Okay. There there are ways to produce. Of course. Yeah. Uh, and we do it. I mean, again, we're heavily regulated. So, but people have been misinformed. That's the thing, man. It's hard to, 
once somebody already has a preconceived notion about a certain industry or anything like that, I mean, you talk to anybody, pretty much any layperson, and you tell them that you work in oil and gas and that you're let at an executive level, they think that you're some sort of oil and gas billionaire tycoon, especially myself with my skin tone. They just think I'm some sort of Saudi prince that's just come over and that we just suck out the oil dry of you stick a straw into the ground and that's how oil comes out. It's just so these preconceived notions are so stupid. I mean, it just, it really bugs me sometimes is that if people just realize like fracking does not. And I mean, one of our engineers here, he did a, he did, I think a, a thesis on this, his PhD thesis on it about how fracking <laughs> does not harm the earth. It's actually the saltwater disposal that's actually harming the earth and kind of what it does. And that's kind of what's causing these earthquakes and whatnot. And, and you know, the, the, the gassy, you know, water that's kind of coming out now. So I think if people just took the time out to understand it, which there's a lot of stuff like myself that I just probably don't understand it. If I just took the time to understood it, understand it, you, you probably are not as ignorant to it as anymore. So I just, it's, it's hard for people to, to, to shake those preconceived notions. And I, and I wish we could, but it, it's an uphill battle, especially now with this war on energy on, on oil and gas, specifically fossil fuels, Everybody is, you know, by 2030, everybody's supposed to have an electric car, which I'm, you know, you know, this mommy, Jonathan, I love my cars. I can't stand an electric car. I need to hear my engine. I love a combustion engine, a combustion engine. Every major car manufacturer in the world has either got a hybrid car now, or they're going to be going to fully electric cars. I mean, it's, I don't think it's sustainable. I really don't think it's, or I don't, I don't want to say it's sustainable. I don't think it's possible in the immediate 20 year range. I, I think we're at least 20 years away from kind of doing something like that, but I don't know. What's, what's your take on that? Well, look, you've got a lot of money out there uh, being invested in electric vehicles. And it's, <laughs> so yes, they will be, but they make right now, there's such a small percentage of total vehicles on the road around the world. And if that doubles or triples over the next few years, it's still a very low percentage of the actual vehicles on the road. Sure. Um, so fossil fuels, you know, the combustion engine going away. Well, not anytime soon. Look, I hope I, not. I I think what it's what it's going to come down to, and there will be some some point out there, and probably not too distant future, or maybe it takes a few years, but when people start to see a increase in their cost of living um, because of the increased cost of of uh, you know doing away with fossil fuels. Sure, it's yeah. People will start to listen. You can't. Uh, I mean, I'll never forget this. I was on a plane flying from up. I was flying from from Houston back to LA, and I'm sitting next to this lady, and I'm trying to avoid this conversation. I try and avoid the conversations of what do you do? Because <laughs> I never know who I'm sitting by on a flight to LA. Sure. And finally, you know, I told her what I did. And all of a sudden, I became evil. Oh, man. Because you know, I'm in the oil and gas business. You're, yeah, you're and, the scum of the earth. So it's, uh, so I'm asking her, well, why were you in Houston? Well, I went to see my grandkids. Well, I'm like, I'm like, the fuel that's powering this plane, you know, <coughs> is what we, you know, 
it's refined, but it's what we get out of the ground. So how are you going to go see your grandkids uh, if we don't, you know, if we don't provide that energy for you? Yeah, so that's she's like, well, you're missing the point. You're harming the environment. And I'm like, <laughs> me getting it out of the ground is not harming the environment. You flying to see your grandkids is what's harming the environment. Man, it's people don't realize how much petroleum is actually like in this room. If somebody just realized that, I bet you 90% of this room is, is, is petroleum based. It's just, I, I, I hope people take the time to start realizing that if they do some research and they kind of look into it and they talk to educated people like yourself, that they can actually learn about the industry that's, and I mean, you've seen all, all parts of the industry, right? And you know, I, I want to kind of wrap up on the note that, you know, you're, you're seeing that there's a future here in oil and gas. What does, what do you think the future looks like? Not only for oil and gas, but for yourself as somebody who has, you've adjusted to the times very, I mean, you are uh, fantastic at pivoting, right. And you're good at it and you you know, when to move, um, where do you see the future going and what, what, what's your expectations for the future for, not only from a business perspective, but from a, a worldwide perspective, where is everything going? And then, you know, kind of tying that into the black lives movement. How is that kind of, how is that tying in? Is it, are we, are we on path for, you know, a division, a, a, a civil war? Or are we on, on path for, you know, people kind of realizing that, Hey, there's some, there's some obvious inequalities here and that we need to kind of, you know, broach those. And if we don't, then we're just never going to get anywhere. Well, I mean, that's uh, you said a lot there. So. Oh uh, yeah. There's a lot to unpack. Uh, let me uh, try and, tie this together uh you know if you uh if you look at history once and we all should take the time to look at history i mean the world is always evolving mm. you know cultures evolve and countries evolve and um you know you look at the united states we're still a very young country yeah um and i think we have to be careful sometimes when we say this is who we are well, maybe not, because I don't know that we, I don't know that we are, we're there yet. And if we, if we are anything, we're, um, we're a land of immigrants of all type. Uh, many who came here willingly and some who came here unwillingly. Mm-hmm. But for the most part, most of us came here. And as, as that continues to be the case, because I think that will continue to be the case, um, people have different opinions on that, but this, you know, basically this, the, the mix is going to continue to change whether we like it or not. Mm-hmm. And eventually as the mix continues to change, the power is going to shift from one hand, you know, from one group to the next group. It's natural, but there will always be, there will always be strife around it. There'll always be some contention. But that's natural. It's always, you know, nobody freely gives up power. Uh, that's okay. We just have to realize the change and be open to it. Um, and because at the end of the day, what matters is, is our, is our life, are our lives better or worse? You know, are the people around us being helped? Are we, you know, are we doing more for others? You know, the things that make life important. It's easy to sit around and focus on, you know, what's not going on or that it's different. Okay, it's different, but is it worse? Or is it just different? And 
Different is okay if you're still moving forward. And I think that's what we're going to find ourselves. I mean, even, so take that to fossil fuels. Do I, look, we all know we've got a depleting asset. It ain't going to last forever. Mm. You know, so to sit around and, and to act like it is, we know better. And so there will be a transition. We just, it just needs to be a balanced transition. That in, as, it's be, as we're transitioning, we need to make sure that we don't do more damage than good. Uh, and I think reason, reasonable minds ought to be able to figure that out. Unfortunately, uh, most of us aren't reasonable. That's the thing, man. There's uh, everything kind of changes once you kind of put uh, power and money into the mix. But that was really beautifully put and beautifully said. Um, I I really appreciate you coming on, Jonathan. I really enjoyed this. I I enjoyed kind of talking about a <clears throat> a multitude of things and kind of talking about where you kind of say where the future is kind of going. I'm always cautiously optimistic because I think there's a lot more good out there than there is bad. And I'm always kind of the guy that hopes for the good to prevail. So I'm cautiously optimistic that the future is going to look good. Um, you know, obviously we do have a depreciating asset, which I'm, I'm bitterly reminded every about this time of the year, um, every year that, you know, when we look at our Netherlands reserve reports that they're always going down, uh, it's a depreciating asset. We're pulling it out of the ground. But um, no, man, I really appreciate you coming on and talking about it and shedding light on some of these issues and uh, and talking about your kind of experiences and kind of what uh, is kind of going on. I'm excited to hear more. And I'm sure there's going to be a lot of people kind of reaching out to you and talking about the um, uh, the crypto mining with the uh, with the natural gas and oil and gas. So um, excited to hear more about that and talk more about that. And uh, thanks for coming on, man. Well, I appreciate the invite. Thank you, sir. Hope Thank to you. do it again soon. We'll do it again soon. <laughs> Thank you.